This part of the Sermon on the Mount says, Therefore I tell you, says Jesus, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, or pagans, seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Amen. And amen. The most important day in your life is not the day that you are born, neither is it the day that you will die. Nor is it the day that you are graduated, married, or promoted. It may seem rather strange, but the most important day in your life is also the most, the most important day in my life. For that most important day is today and every day that God gives us grace to live. Today is the most important day in our lives, not just because today is the first day of the rest of our lives, but it is so also because today is the culmination of all of the yesterdays and holds the potential of all of tomorrows. It's important also because, you know, it's really the only day we have. Yesterday, that's gone forever. And no assurance is given that tomorrow will ever come. Today, right now, is really the only day or moment that you can really be sure of. The late Reverend Dr. John R. Mott, great missionary and preacher, used to say that lost wealth can be replaced with industry, Lost health sometimes 
can be replaced by medical science, but a lost weekend is irreparably gone and can never be replaced. So on this, the most important day in your and my life, I'd like you to think about some important things, what you might be doing on this, your most important day. Four suggestions. One, I think it's a good idea every day to conduct some first-class funerals. For you to conduct some burial services for some of the regrets and rewards that you have known in life. And with proper solemn decora and with the right amount of grief, you lay some things to rest that need to be buried forever. In one grave you may put some sins, those sins of yesterday which were obvious signs of your selfishness and self-centeredness, which brought nothing but trouble and evil into your life and to other people's lives. You know, as Christians, we have that privilege. Through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we have his empty tomb. His empty tomb, which is a bottomless grave, where you and I have the privilege and the power of placing in that grave which is covered with the sod of forgiveness and forgetfulness every transgression that we have ever committed. Place in one grave the sins of yesterday. In another grave, you may want to put the mistakes, or the goofs, or the failures that you made yesterday. Those senseless, irresponsible, silly, crazy, unnecessary things that we said or did, which amounted really to nothing but to create havoc. We're embarrassed. We're sorry. We think everybody remembers them. We'd like to forget them. But they keep cropping up, haunting us. And no matter how hard we try to justify them by playing all sorts of games with ourselves and with other people, we can't get rid of their memories. Bury them. You can't do one solitary thing about them. They're goofs, they're gone, they're done, forget them. And when you forget them, you'd be surprised how other people bury them too. Place those in the second grave. Third grave, put those insults that have been directed to you by somebody whose mind has been filled only with anger and whose heart has been temporarily vacated of love. You know them those comments, those actions which have been perpetrated against you, which usually an hour or a day or at least a week or a month later, the person is very sorry what he said or what he did. You're responsible in God's sight is to not only forgive that person, but to forget 
what was said or what was done. But all in all, we like to replay those things and replay them in our hearts and in our minds until we build them all out of proportion and they begin to eat like a cancer. They hurt not that one, they hurt us. <laughs> and before they kill you, you better kill them, and you can do so by putting them in a grave. Bury them. In another grave, you may want to put some of the successes, the awards or rewards, those things that God, by his power, has been able to do through you, those things which which the world thanks you for. Those particular things that have been marvelous and tremendous and have meant so much to so many people. But those things that we talk about far too much and want other people to talk about and which are turning into stumbling blocks instead of stepping stones to even bigger and greater things. Bury those things. Bury them. I'm sure there are some other graves you want to open. But on this day and every day of your life, I suggest you conduct some funeral services for some of the regrets and the rewards of yesterday. Second suggestion, resist that temptation to pick up the binoculars as you try to look into the puzzles and the problems of tomorrow. We all have a set of those binoculars, you know. And oh, how we are tempted to pick them up, to focus them carefully, and to analyze, scrutinize, and look into the problems and the puzzles of tomorrow. You'd be surprised how often we do that. Dr. Leonard Griffith, one of the greatest preachers of this century, tells in one of his little books about a psychologist who once asked 3,000 people, what are you living for? What are you living for? Ninety percent indicated that they were merely putting up with today looking for something in the future. Some of them were looking for graduation, other ones were looking to get married, some were looking for getting unmarried, some were looking for a promotion, some were looking for graduation of some type or promotion, others were looking for somebody or something to die so that at last they would feel free. 2,700 people out of a group of 3,000 were so busily looking into tomorrow that they were oblivious to the beautiful things about them of today. Jesus, in telling us to take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take care of itself, was not trying to tell us that we should be blind to the future. Oh, no, God's not against long-range plans. But he is trying to protect us from projecting ourselves so much into tomorrow that we forget to live today. God never expected you to live tomorrow today. He wants you to live tomorrow, tomorrow, today, today. And only you have the power to live 
today. Today. And you can do so only by refusing to accept that temptation to pick up the binoculars and look into the puzzles and the problems of tomorrow. Now, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said that anxiety was absolutely worthless. It didn't add one little cubit to anybody's stature. And I can prove that. As I look over this great and massive crowd today, I'm looking into the faces of many people I know. You're not only parishioners, but you're my friends. And I know some of you in 1977 went through some real deep water. Sickness, sorrow, reverses, heartache, separation, death. I've been at this business 20 years. And in no one year did I hear as many people say, as they did two weeks ago, how glad they would be to see a year come to an end, as some of you said it concerning 1977. You know, if somebody had had the ability one year ago today to tell you of what you would have to face, the trials you would have to endure, the water you would have to go through. You'd have told them you couldn't bear it, couldn't take it. The year's gone, the trouble's passed, and you are living proof that you've survived. On the other hand, you see, some of you went into 1977 believing, believing that there were danger signals ahead. All sorts of trouble was going to happen to you. And you worried. And you became anxious. And the fact is, many of those things never happened, or if they happened, they didn't happen to the degree of expectation that you thought. And all that anxiety was for nothing. So you see, whether you are anxious or whether or not you are anxious, it really doesn't matter at all. And God expects us not to live tomorrow today, but let tomorrow worry about itself when it becomes today. Conduct some funerals, resist picking up the binoculars. Three. Seek first the kingdom of God. Now that's a great preacher's way of saying something that people can easily dismiss. So I want you to tear those words apart. Seek. That's a strong, active verb. It doesn't mean just go and look around. No, no. It means you search. It means you diligently look. It means you ask questions. You inquire. You Recklessly go and dig and think and sweat and toil until you find. Seek. Nothing mamby-pamby about that word.
You seek the kingdom of God. What on tarnation is the kingdom of God? You know, I can't really tell you. <laughs> Seven years and several thousand dollars education. I'm not sure I can really tell you. It's simply because I've never heard yet anybody say entirely what all is included in the kingdom of God. That's a term which defies complete definition. And thank God it does. It's a spiritual term, and things of the spirit you can't catch with words. You can't get them confined only in a definition. They're too big, they're too great. The kingdom of God, though, as best I understand it, is life. Life as it was expected to be lived when God created us, and life as we can live it as Jesus Christ taught us. It's learning about things of the Spirit. It's being a better person than you are today. It's thinking upon things and placing them in their proper priorities. It's living in a spirit where neither life nor death Angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come shall ever be able to separate you from God. It means learning more every day about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It means trying to find out information that you will totally never find out. And that's what you and I are to do every day. And we have all of the tools to seek the Holy Word. Prayer. Meditation upon life, upon God, upon ourselves. Time. And every one of us who does not spend a day in the Word of God or at the throne of grace are about thinking of the things of the Spirit. We make that day a little less important than God intended it to me. Four. Every moment of the day as best as you know how, do, do what is right. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added unto you. I don't mean to be overly simplistic, and I don't think I am. But I don't think knowing what is right is as difficult as some of us would like to believe or as some preachers or teachers would want us to believe. No, I'm sorry. 
I don't think knowing what is right is that hard to understand, especially if you have a person who reads your Bible daily, who comes to church and listens to biblical preaching. If you are a person who grew up with righteous parents and grandparents, I'm sorry, you know what is right. Sometimes in the counseling room, somebody will come in, we'll talk over a problem, and I'll say, uh, what do you think is the right thing for you to do? And they'll tell me, and I say, well, go do it. They say, I can't. I said, no, that's garbage. You won't. There's a big difference between knowing what is right and doing it. And our problem as a nation and as individuals is that we don't do the right. What does the Lord require of thee? <laughs> Second thing, love mercy. Third, walk humbly with God. But the first thing is to do justly. And just is just the synonym for right. Our poor president's getting it by the press abroad and at home. I'm not for him entirely. He's a human being, makes mistakes. But how pleased I was to hear in the release this morning. He doesn't know quite what that trip meant, but he knows one thing. He tried to do what was right. Hallelujah, amen. That's the first time in a long time I've heard anybody, anybody, simply let something drop by saying they did something because it was right. What's wrong with us? We have to do this because of this. We explain this to our children because of this and this. What's wrong with telling somebody you do something because it's right? Period. That's our job. Oh, we talk so much about rights today. World rights, states' rights, civil rights, individual rights, women's rights. The new ones, the rights of children. You know? I think if we'd only talk about what is right in the sight of God, the rest of these rights would take care of themselves. But we talk so much about right, <laughs> we forget to do right in the sight of God. And it's not as difficult as we would like to make it. So on this important day in your life, conduct some funerals. Resist taking up the binoculars. Seek the kingdom and do what is right. And that day will be important. And if you do that, I guarantee you, you will begin to feel important. And that's important because God created you to be important. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.